Now, I'm going to attempt to lead you all in doing something that maybe you did when you were a child years ago in Sunday school, and you may never have done it, but anyway, hopefully I will do it right. Let me demonstrate first, and then we'll all do it together. I'm going to take both of my hands. I'm going to join them together so that my fingers are pointed in to, towards me, okay? So they're interlocked inter, towards me, and this is the way this went. You put, close them like that, and you close them so you got your two thumbs looking at you, and you say, here's a church, and there's a steeple, and open your hands and see all the people. Okay, so let's practice. Let's do that together. First time I did it the other day, I put my hands and the fingers in the wrong position, so all my people fell out of the church instead of being together in the church, all right? All right, put our hands together with the fingers interlocked, looking at us. Put the thumbs together, all right? Those of you that are watching by social media, join us in this. You'll see there is a reason for my ridiculousness in a few moments, or hopefully there's a reason for my ridiculousness. All right, here's the church. There's the steeple. Open the door, and you see all the people. Let's do it one more time. This way you'll remember it, all right? Here's the church. There's the steeple. You open the doors and see all the people. Now, as you're holding though, your fingers there together and looking at all the people that are in there interlocked with each other, notice that your fingers, in order to do this, have to be locked in there together tightly and closely for all the people to be there. Get that visual image of your fingers interlocked and close together because that is what Jesus is praying for his church. That is what Jesus wants for us to be. Together, our lives intertwined with each other, bound together. He prays in the 17th chapter of John's gospel for us to be one. And that is what oneness looks like. Now, our fingers are all different. We've got the index finger and the thumb etc. They function in different ways. None of them is equal length. Just like the body of Christ, we are different. We function differently. But together, in oneness, we accomplish the task, the mission that He has set out for us. Turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 17. John's Gospel, chapter 17. I'm in a series of messages through the 17th chapter of John. It is referred to as Jesus' prayer for the church, His high priestly prayer for the church. It was prayed, we believe, in the courts of the temple as He was making His way from one end of Jerusalem where He had just celebrated in the upper room the Last Supper with His disciples. He is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the opposite side of the city. He would have had to have passed through the temple compound from one side to the other. And there in the temple compound, probably in what was called the Court of the Gentiles, which would have been a huge court area, the first part of the courts leading up to the temple. He stops there in that court with the disciples. It was the time of Passover, so the court area would have been filled with probably thousands of people. And Jesus begins to pray this prayer out loud, and he begins to go through these requests that we've looked at in recent weeks. He prays 
for the Father God to keep us, to hold us, and to protect us. He prays second for us to know and to live and to have His joy. That inner sense of I'm living out His will, His desire, His destiny for my life. I'm living out what it means to be in His presence. He prays next to keep us from evil. And then as we saw last week, He prays that we will be holy. And that idea of holiness is that we have been adopted into His family, costing His life for us to be adopted, for us to belong to Him. Now, each of the requests that I've just gone through that we have covered in the last few weeks, to be holy, to be kept, to be kept from evil, Jesus prays those requests one time. The request that we're going to look at today, He prays over and over and over again in this prayer. He just keeps repeating it. It's like he gets on this and he just keeps coming back to it and coming back to it. And when Jesus says something one time, we know we better pay attention. But if he keeps repeating himself, we know we better pay big time attention to it because it's extremely important to him. And this idea, this concept, this desire he has for us to be one is above all the other desires that he prays for us, the top desire, because he keeps asking the Lord over and over again, make them one, make them one, make them one. It's like he just cannot get away from that. It just spontaneously rolls through his heart and off of his lips. Father, would you make them one? And as the disciples would have stood there that night listening to him in those, that temple court, they must have thought, man, this must really be important to him because he keeps praying it over and over and over again. And we've said that what he outlines here in the 17th chapter of John, that's his will for us. That's his desire for us. That's what he wants for us. And so if he's saying this and, and speaking to the Father and beseeching the Father over and over and over again, it gives us an idea of what a top priority this is with Jesus, how much he wants this to happen. You see, so often our temptation is to want to be number one, and his desire is for oneness. He never desires for us to be number one. His desire is for oneness for us as his body. John chapter 17, we're going to look first at verse 11, and then we're going to go verses 20 through 23. John chapter 17, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they, that is his followers, are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, now, why does he want the Father to keep us, keep us close to himself? That they may be one even as we are one. That they may be one even as we are one. So early on in this prayer, he presents the request for us to be united, to be as one. Now, notice how he qualifies that. That they may be one even as we are one. The oneness that he is praying for is not just a nice unity. It is a oneness that replicates the oneness that the Father and the Son share together. This isn't a nice unity. This is a really serious, intense oneness because it is patterned after the oneness that the Father and the Son share. And we're going to look at that in just a few moments. Now, on to verse 20. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Notice how he keeps repeating this request. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Notice the qualifying adjective there, perfectly one, so that the world, he's repeating that mission again, that reason, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Notice how Jesus, again, he keeps repeating this request over and over. I want them to be one. I'm praying that they will be one. He says, I and you and thou and me. I like to call that God's divine entanglement. I'm in you, Father. Father, you are in me. I want them to be together just like I'm in you and you are me, that they may be one. I mean, he repeats it so many times that after a while, the word's almost tripping over our tongue because of the repetitiveness of it. But that's showing how almost in his prayer, he's getting strachotic in the prayer because of the intensity of the desire is so strong in him. Lord, let them be one. Let them be one. Let them be one just like you and I are one. Now, so often when we talk about being one or we talk about being unified, what we settle for is the absence of conflict. So we'll say, well, that church is unified. They're not having a fight. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Because you see, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit never even thought about having a fight with each other. They have never been in conflict with each other. So when Jesus says pray that they be one, he's not talking about just praying for the absence of conflict because the Trinity has never for one second in eternity known what it is to be in conflict with each other. So they're not just asking us to pray for the absence of conflict because the Trinity has never been in conflict with itself anyway. He's praying for something much greater and deeper and broader than the absence of conflict. It's the most personal request that he makes. He's praying that we have the same depth and quality of relationship between each other that he and the Father share with each other. Notice at verse 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. In other words, he's getting ready to ascend to the Father after his crucifixion and resurrection. And he says, hey, I'm leaving them in the world. That's why they need to be one. Keep on being one is the idea. Keep that mindset so we share the same goal, the same destiny, and the same desire. Now, notice verse 21. He says, The reason for us that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us. Now the mission, this is the reason, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's saying, The reason I want them to understand and to live in this oneness, which is spiritual, psychological, emotional. We'll see all that in just a few moments. The reason he's saying, I want you to share in this oneness is so that the world will look at us and believe in him. The ultimate goal and destiny that he has for us to share this oneness is so that the world, people who do not know him, are not following him, will look at what we as followers of Jesus Christ share with one another and say, they are followers of Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Because the oneness that they share literally is an attraction that draws people to the Lord Jesus Christ and to want to be in a relationship with him. Now notice verse 23. 
as he moves on in this prayer. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Again, there's the mission. And then notice what he says, and love them even as you loved me. That they may be what that the world may believe in me, and that the world may know that I love them even as you love me. That Father, you love them even as you love me. Now think about that. I I have read the seventeenth chapter of John since I was a teenager, and that didn't hit me till this week. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus is saying he wants folks to understand. He wants you to understand. Now get this. That God the Father loves you as much as he loves his son Jesus. That God the Father loves you as much as he loves his son Jesus. Now to use an expression from the 70s, that's heavy. That is heavy. That God loves me, that God loves you as much as he loves his son. I've been a dad for 27 years. I don't know that there's another guy on the face of this earth that I love anymore or comes closer to how much I love my son, Jonathan. But God is saying here that he loves us as much as he loves his son. And he wants people to understand that. I tell you one of the reasons this impacted me so much this week when I was sitting in my office and I was reading this and this really started hitting me. And many of you know my my life story. But my dad left our home when I was 13 years of age. And I struggled and have struggled for the rest of my life without the affirmation and acceptance and love of a dad that I wanted accepted and loved from so much just as any son desires from his father. And when I was reading this and studying this this week, it just hit me in my office and just began to roll through my mind and heart that God was saying, I know you struggled with the absence of the love of your dad most of your life, but I want you to see, David, that you've had a heavenly father who has loved you more than even he could have loved you. You have a heavenly father who loves you as much as he loves his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say to all of you that are listening today, whether it's through social media or here in this room, if you've had a similar struggle in your life, I want you to know that you have a heavenly Father who loves you as much as He loved His Son. That's what it means to be loved by Him. And when we as the church are one in Him, that is the powerful lesson and message that we communicate to the world around us that God loves you as much as he loved his son it is not about deserving his love it is not about earning his love it's just about receiving his love you know when my son was born 
Jonathan did not pop out of the wound with a resume in hand for all the reasons I should love him. He came out with no reasons at all other than that he was my son and that's the only requirement he had to have. For the last 27 years, I haven't required that he produce a resume to tell me all the reasons I should love him. So many of us don't think we can receive God's love because we can't put out a resume. I'm not good enough. I'm not churchy enough. I'm not spiritual enough. Except, Listen, God loved you and didn't ask for your permission. God loved you and loved us. I don't care how screwed up and messed up we are. He loved us with our emotional diapers on, filling them up. He chose to love us anyway. Because that's who he is in the core of who he is. Now, let's talk about some examples of the oneness between the Father and the Son and how that impacts us. How do we live out that oneness? Well, let's go back. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you Scripture references for you to go home and study on your own. I don't have time to read all that this morning, so I'm going to give you the Scripture reference, and it's in your, uh, they're in your notes in your, in your Rocky Mountain Connection. Go home and read them, and I'm going to give you some additional ones that are, are not in your notes. Go home and read them. I'm just going to retell the story, and we're going to look at how the Father and the Son share this love and this oneness between them and how it impacts us. First of all, the baptism of Jesus. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And the one word I want you to remember from the baptism of Jesus is the word affirmation. Affirmation. Now, in the baptism of Jesus, Jesus goes down to the River Jordan, and he goes down into the water. And he's baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water. He's standing there. And as when the baptism is over with, it says that the heavens opened up and that the Spirit of God in the form of a dove came and lit on Jesus and that a voice was heard from heaven, the voice of the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So let's look at the dynamics of what happens and what is said here because all of it is the Father affirming the Son. First of all, Jesus comes up out of the water and says that the heavens open. It's like God is stretching out His arms to hug His Son. Then it says that the Spirit came. And what's so beautiful when we see these stories over and over again is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always interfacing with each other. And so it says that the Spirit comes in the form of a dove and lights on Jesus. And that was the way of anointing and empowering Jesus for ministry and to show Jesus that the Father, again, was affirming Him and accepting Him. It says He came in the form of a dove. The dove in those days spoke of peace. The Jewish concept of peace, shalom, which means wholeness. And then this voice is heard from heaven, this is my beloved Son. Now notice how the Father speaks to the Son. This is my personal possessive pronoun. My, what kind of Son? My beloved Son. The Son that I love. He is what He is My beloved son, not a friend, not an acquaintance, family. He is my son. What is God doing here? He, the father, is claiming the son. He is expressing pride in the son, in whom I am well pleased. He is identifying with the son. And when Jesus walked out of that water, he knew 
in the depths of his being who he was. I'm the son of my father, and he knew whose he was. I belong to my father. And notice what the Father God did here. He publicly claimed and identified Jesus as his son. He was not ashamed. He was proud to publicly identify him as the son. And I can't stress the public aspect of this or not. This was not come over here off the corner where nobody can hear me and see me and I'll say, hey, you're my son. It was like, I want everybody out here today to know this is my boy. This is my son. Now, how does that reflect in oneness that we share as the body of Christ? It means that we belong to each other and we acknowledge that we belong to each other and we affirm that we are attached to each other and we belong to each other. We claim each other. We share his peace and his wholeness with each other. We focus primarily on what binds us together, what we share in common in the Lord Jesus Christ. We identify with each other. That's my brother in Christ. That's my sister in Christ. We may look different, act different, think different, function differently. They may smell bad. I may smell bad, whatever. But at the end of the day, we are one in the Lord Jesus. We affirm each other. And I'm not ashamed of the family of God when I'm out in public. I'm not ashamed of the family of God when one of the members of the family blows it and screws up and messes up. Because in family, sometimes you do screw up, but you don't disown each other just because you screw up. You just love each other even more and love each other through the screw up and the mess up. That's what it means to be family. And that's that idea of us oneness that he's praying here. I want you to be one and I'm claiming you as one. I've shared with you probably in the past a story I had years ago. I was out visiting with my pastor I grew up under in Richmond, Bob Cochran. I think I was a teenager at the time. We were out visiting in a hospital together. And we walked into a hospital room, and we were visiting. And the patient looked up at my pastor, and he said, Is that your son with you? And my heart stood still for some reason. I just didn't know how he was going to respond. And I'll never forget what Pastor Cochran said. He said, no, this is my son, but I wouldn't mind claiming him. I felt 10 feet tall after he said that. I wouldn't mind claiming him. What it means for us to be family is that we claim each other. We affirm that we belong to each other. The baptism of Jesus, affirmation. Second, the temptation of Jesus. Matthew's gospel, just write down from those verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Loyalty is the word I want you to remember here. Loyalty. The baptism of Jesus sets up the temptation of Jesus. And this is how it sets up the temptation of Jesus. Notice I talked about how they had this sense of Jesus was identifying with the Father. The Father was identifying with him. Therefore, Jesus knew he was the son of the Father. He knew where his loyalty lay. His loyalty lay with the Father. And because of that loyalty, he knew he would pass the test. So, notice what the devil says when he comes to Jesus. Catch these words. Satan takes, comes to Jesus out in the wilderness. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. Satan shows up. He begins the temptation. Notice the way he tempts him. Verse 3. If, if... You are the Son of God. Command these stones to become bread. Temptation number two. 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Temptation number three. I own all the kingdoms out here. If you will fall down and worship me, you'll have them all. Do you catch what Satan is doing? He's striking Jesus at the very core of who he is. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. What he's trying to do is plant doubt in his mind. You're not really the Son of God. Well, prove that you're the Son of God. Turn the stones in the bread to prove that you're the Son of God. You've got to prove your sonship. You can't accept it. You can't believe what the Father just told you at the baptism. You've got to prove it, and you've got to manipulate God the Father to prove that you are the Son of God. He's questioning the connection between Jesus and the Father. And what does Jesus do? Every time he responds back with Scripture, and Jesus basically says to him, I don't have to prove a thing. I know who I am. And I am loyal to my Father. I know who I am. And I am loyal to my Father. There's a oneness there between me and the Father. And you can sit here and throw doubt at me, devil, all day long. But I know who I am and I know to whom I belong. And so I'm connected to the Father. And I'm not going to fall for this mess that you're doing. Now part of what he's trying to get Jesus to do here is to manipulate God take advantage of God, to settle for something that's cheap and fake, turning stones into bread, throwing yourself off the temple, to celebrate for what's, excuse me, settle for what's temporal. And that's the temptation that you and I always face in the, in the church, in the body of Christ. Celebrate for what, to settle for what's cheap and fake, try to control each other, manipulate each other, use each other, take each other for granted. But when you and I know our identity with, in Christ, I know who I am. I know that I belong to Him. I am loyal to the family. Now, what does loyalty to the family look like? It means that I don't try to use members of the family of God. It means I don't try to manipulate members of the family of God. It means that when the temptation comes to tear into the members of the family and criticize members of the family and put members of the family down to put myself up. I don't engage in that because I'm loyal to the family. I'm loyal to the family. That was the temptation. Now let's move to the crucifixion. And the word there I want to give you, the phrase there I want to give you is one in suffering. One in suffering. How were the Father and the Son together at the cross? They were one in suffering. When Jesus suffers on the cross, the Father suffers with Him. Jesus suffers on the cross to glorify the Father. He recognizes that His suffering on the cross is the means by which He will advance the Father's will. So they suffer together to reach the objective of our salvation. Now, when Jesus dies, if you look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 45 through 56, Matthew 3, 45 through 56, there are some things that happen 
and some things that are said. And the father is indicating how involved he is with the son. First of all, when Jesus dies, the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem is torn from the top to the bottom. Now, in an intriguing passage of Scripture that I have yet to try to figure out and interpret, it says that the tombs of the saints are open, and saints come out of those tombs and go and talk to people in Jerusalem. Now, that's a sermon for another day if I can ever figure out how to interpret that passage of Scripture. Please don't come up and ask me how to interpret that passage of Scripture. All right. <laughs> it says that the sky turns black and there is no sun for three hours. And in the midst of all of this happening, sky turning black for three hours, the temple being rent, graves opening, the saints coming out and talking, that the centurion who's present at the foot of the cross and the guards exclaim, surely he was the Son of God. Surely he was the Son of God. The angels are not saying that. The centurion and the guards are saying, surely he was the Son of God. As those guards and that centurion stood on that cross and they felt the earth move and they stood there in darkness for three hours and they saw and heard what was going on. Hey, did you hear that the temple, the great curtain in the temple has been torn? Have you heard that the graves of the saints are opening up? They don't step back and say, "Ooh, that's something else. I can't wait to meet one of those saints. They don't say, I want to run to the temple and see that rent veil there. What they say is, surely he was the Son of God. They recognized how the Father was suffering with the Son, was involved with the Son. You see, God did not sit up in heaven and watch His Son dying on a cross and suffered and say, that's terrible and I hate to see it. He got down in the suffering with His Son. He hurt from heaven, I believe, as much as the Son was hurting on the cross. At the end of his life, at the end of three hours, at the end of that suffering, Jesus yells out to the Father with the last bit of energy he's got, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Into your hands I commend my spirit. First of all, Jesus is saying when he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, Lord, the last three hours have been hell, literally, but I still trust you. This wasn't what I wanted, what I asked for in Gethsemane. I said, could you make this cup pass? And you said, no, you got to drink it. But I still trust you. And we are as one now as we were back at the baptism. Because I want my spirit, what's left of me, to go back to you. Into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. The Father and the Son were never so closely bonded as they were at the cross. The Father and the Son were never so closely bonded as they were at the cross. Folks, suffering has the power to bond us one to another. God allows and God takes us through times of severe loss and suffering to bond us to one another. We have that common lot of suffering. 
pain is the thread that God often uses to hold us together. When a sports team hurts and sweats and struggles to win a game, that team is bonded together. As long as we are comfortable and in ease, what do we do? We tend to complain, to criticize, and divide from one another. But when we serve together, sacrifice together, and even suffer together, we bond with one another. We share with one another. We depend on each other. We come to appreciate each other. One of the reasons that I I push mission experiences for us so much, wherever those experiences are, is when we're out on a mission field, whether it's Windy Land or Southampton Roads or overseas, wherever, when we're on a mission field together, we have to depend on each other. We have to trust each other. We have to make up for each other's shortcomings and differences. Sometimes we have to sacrifice with each other. And in so doing, we have that oneness that is formed. And yes, I am not so sure that the church, the body of Christ in the United States is not headed for a period of suffering and persecution that we have not known previously. But that's not going to be the worst thing in the world. Because suffering and persecution has the potential for us to bond with one another. You know, our brothers and sisters in other countries this day who are being persecuted for their faith, when you're worried about someone walking in the door and putting a gun at your head for naming the name of Christ, you really could care less what the heat level is or the air conditioning level is in the sanctuary. You're not too concerned about how the music sounded or how the preacher was dressed if you think that you may end up with a body full of bullets before you walk out the door for him. And you see, that's that suffering together that bonds us to one another. And in so doing, the Lord is glorified. Final is the resurrection. John's Gospel, chapter 20. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, is the study, excuse me, the story of the resurrection. And in Romans, chapter 1, and verse 4, listen to these words. Romans, chapter 1, and verse 4. And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The spirit of God raised him, and he was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was the ultimate way that God declared that Jesus was his son. Now, what did the father and the son share in the resurrection. Now, that's a whole sermon, and I'm going to get, try to cover it in a one minute. Number one, they shared oneness of life. Oneness of life. What raised Jesus from that dead? The life of God. What brought him out of that tomb alive and well? The life of God. They shared A oneness of life that conquered sin, that conquered our guilt, that conquered our shame, and that conquered death. That's why Paul said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because the life of God conquered death and the grave. The Father and the Son in the resurrection shared that life. And they shared celebration. 
they celebrated two things. Celebration number one, everything that the son set out to accomplish, that the father had commissioned him and told him to accomplish, was accomplished on resurrection morning. 100% man, Satan, the whole bit, could not stop Jesus from accomplishing the mission the father gave him. Second thing they celebrated, mission accomplished, mission just started. I love what Acts says. Luke, in writing the book of Acts, says what I wrote you was all that Jesus began to do. Began to do. Because they celebrated the morning of the resurrection, mission number two, getting the word out about this, is just starting. So what do we, you and I do as oneness in Christ? Number one, we celebrate the life of the resurrection. We celebrate the life of the resurrection. That we live and we walk and we minister and everything we do is in the life of the resurrection. We are a resurrection people and we live in the life of His resurrection. That's our strength. That's our energy. That's our hope. Do we have hope no matter what's going on around us? Yes. What is our hope in? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The tomb is empty. It's going to stay empty. It has been empty for 2,000 years. And that empty tomb in Jerusalem is proof He rose from the dead and we live and we walk in His life. He has conquered everything that was thrown in his face. And he came out victorious as the champion. We celebrate and we live in his resurrection. Second, we celebrate that his mission was accomplished. We don't earn our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. Jesus secured all of it on the cross and in his resurrection. And we celebrate the mission that he has called us to, to tell other people about Jesus. We celebrate the mission of what He's called us to. Because the mission He's called us to is to bring the love of God and the power of God and the joy of the Lord to people's lives. To let people know Jesus loves you and God loves you as much as He loves His Son. And I don't care how messed up your life may be, He wants to infuse His life into your life. He wants you to start living in the resurrection power that He's got. And as his church, we live that and we make an impact with that. We received a letter in the church office yesterday that illustrates the power in a simple way of living out this resurrection power for Christ. We have some folks in our church whose calling and ministry is sending cards to people. And we got this card in return yesterday from someone who had received a card from one of our folks says, a special thank you. Every kindness has a part in bringing joy to someone's heart. It's sometimes easy to forget that there are nice people out there doing things for others. Thanks for being such a special reminder. And then these are the words. Just a few words to say thank you on behalf of my dad, Lewis Rakes, for the get well card sent to him the last three years. It was a small gesture that had a big impact on him. He always would hang each one on his wall for everyone to see. As his dementia progressed, he would often look at them several times a week. Dad went to be with Jesus on January the 25th. Sometimes what seems to be the simplest thing to one person is a huge gift 
to another. Thanks again, the family of Lewis Rakes. Sometimes what seems to be a small gesture on the part of someone is huge in someone else's life. That is sharing the hope, the oneness of Jesus. And you, in our card ministry, did that with a brother who was suffering with dementia. Jesus' prayer, I want you to be one. No matter what your condition, I want you to find a way to be one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your deepest request for us is for us to share that oneness. And Father, help us to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit to affirm one another, to celebrate with one another, to be loyal to one another, and at times, Lord, to suffer together. And Lord, as we do that, you will form between us and in us that bond of oneness with each other. Jesus, thank you for whoever consistently sent thank you cards to this brother in Christ these last three years. And for that sense that he had of being one with the body of Christ by receiving these cards, hanging them on the wall of his bedroom and looking at them multiple times every day and pointing those cards out as his way of saying that the family of God hasn't forgotten me and loves me. Lord, help us, teach us to continue to reach out to folks and to be one. And if you're listening this day and you want to be part of God's family and you've never given your life to Jesus, allow me to encourage you to pray a simple prayer to Him. Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to follow you. I want to know your love. I want to learn how to love you. And Jesus, this day, I say to you, I will follow you. If you prayed that prayer, I want to ask you to contact us so that we can respond back to you and help you begin a walk with the Lord Jesus and growing in your relationship with Him. And now let's worship our Lord together through praise.